0: Have you ever fed a baby? <clears throat> if you haven't, it's it's quite an experience. You know, the, the chair is moving and, and rocking and shaking, and, and there's food all over the place, and, and there's lots of whining and lots of crying. And that's just you. Things are totally different, you know, for the baby. Much, much, much worse for the baby. When my kids were still high chair season, it was very interesting I would hear my wife often use a, a little phrase when she was feeding them a snack or feeding them some food. It's a phrase that almost every parent has probably used more than one time. It's a phrase that goes a little something like this, all gone, all gone. You know, you do the pitch and everything, all, all gone, all gone. So all gone could mean there's no more juice in the sippy cup. All gone could mean there's no more applesauce in the bowl. It could be there's no more Cheerios on the tray. Everything is, is all gone. With a slight variation of all gone, you, you have another phrase that, that goes beyond the high chair, that goes beyond just food, and that phrase is all done. All done. All done. Now, all done could mean, hey, we're, we're all done eating, or we're all done reading this book, or we're all done you know, playing, and now it's you know, time for us to take a nap. Now, with just a slight variation in tone and facial expression, all done can mean a whole new type of finished. Like, you better finish what you're doing right now. You know how it goes. All gone. All done. All done. You know, you've heard that phrase. Or maybe that was just me that always heard that phrase. But, but we see this, this shift of, of language and communicating to kids. Some parents even use sign language to go along with their phrases that you're using. An article from BabyCenter.com talks about the advantage, the benefits of using sign language along with the phrases like all gone and, and all done that you're trying to teach your kids. They say that it can help your child transition from one thing to the next. It can help your child learn to communicate their, their thoughts and their needs in a better way. It also will help them not be so demanding with everything that's going on. Joseph Garcia with Sign to Me Early Learning Resources says this, If a baby can sign for what she wants instead of screaming, everyone, mom, dad, and their baby will be happier. That's probably his true statement, right? One mom was describing what it meant to add sign language to her communication with her little girl. Uh, Emma Finley Smith said this about her daughter Isabella. As she learned more words, her frustration levels dropped dramatically. So, happier, less screaming, less frustration. I mean, we should all maybe learn a little sign language, right? If I mean, these are the benefits of what comes with it. The truth is, though, all of us really do want to hear all gone. In a sense, every single one of us want to hear the words all gone. Meaning, we really don't want our mistakes Remembered. We don't want people bringing up our failures. We don't want them held against us. We, we want them to be forgotten. We want them to be ignored. But what about things that aren't mistakes? What about things that aren't failures? What about the things we do wrong and we do them wrong on purpose? We, we know exactly what we're doing. You know, what about those things? What about those things that literally we know in our hearts That at the very least, we're going to annoy or maybe even hurt our spouse, our kids, our friends, our parents, our teacher, our boss, people we work with, even hurt ourselves or dishonor God. What do we do with those types of things? How do we settle those? How do we get those all gone? Or maybe put another way, what's at least one way? that we might have less frustration, less screaming, and more happiness in our lives? Well, King David's going to help us answer that question. Listen to what he says in Psalm 19, verse 13. Also, keep back your servant from presumptuous sins. That's a big word, and if I miss it the rest of the sermon, don't worry about it. You know what I'm talking about. I think I've pronounced that word like 20 different ways every time I've looked at it this week. But what is a presumptuous sin? Well, we see it in the high chair, at least sometimes. You know, you you cut up some little carrots, and you put those carrots on the tray for your sweet little baby, and your sweet little baby takes those carrots and throws them across the room because they don't want carrots, they want Cheerios. And you look at them and you say, no, all done. And it shocks them a little bit. You know, they, they freeze for a moment. Their, their eyebrows go up. But just for a moment. Because then after that moment, they look you straight in the eye. They cock their right eyebrow up a little bit. They grab carrots and they throw them again all over the room. That's a little bit about what it means to be presumptuous in your sin. It means that you're doing something on purpose. You're doing it in a way that's deliberate. You're doing it with arrogance, with pride. You're doing it excessively. You're doing it rashly and recklessly. You're doing it with audacity. You know it's outside the boundaries, but you're doing it anyway. And by the way, a baby doesn't have to watch another baby throw carrots to learn how to throw carrots. Babies know how to throw carrots on their own. Babies know how to throw temper tantrums on their own. They do not need any help. And here's another funny thing. That's the same for a toddler and for an older child and for a teenager and for an adult. Nobody has to teach us how to be presumptuous in our sin. We all know how to cock our right eyebrow a little bit. Look somebody straight in the eye and do the wrong thing, knowing that we're doing the wrong thing, deliberately, presumptuously. But for professing Christians, that gets a little difficult. Look again what David says. He says, keep back your servant from presumptuous sins. So David is acknowledging, hey, I'm someone who says I love and follow God. But there's a problem. I'm I'm deliberately doing the opposite of what he calls me to do, you see, we have a thing particularly in Western culture in America, maybe even more so in the South, that we as, as mostly law-abiding citizens with you know, good church-going attendance records, we, we have a way of quickly pointing our finger at that world. oh, that world out there. Boy, those sinners out there I mean they're, they're doing terrible, terrible things, and, and we begin to expect. Lost people to act like they're saved. We, we expect non-Christians to act like Christians. We think lost people should have the decency to act like they're saved if they're going to be out in public. Or from an evangelistic standpoint, we want the fish cleaned before they are caught. But see, that's not Christianity. That is Religion. And that's possibly one of the reasons why Jesus used his harshest words with the pastors and the elders and the deacons and the Sunday school teachers and the church members at First Baptist Jerusalem. See, Jesus used harsh words for them because they were promoting the church instead of the gospel. And there is a difference. They were promoting religion over the glory of God. They were promoting who they were more than they were promoting who God was. And if we're not careful, we can fall into the exact same trap. Last week, we noted the importance of making sure that before we go charging out, accusing the character of our culture, that we would look at the character in the mirror, that we would look at ourselves. And alongside of that, we also need to remember this, as someone put it this way, the mirror can lie because it doesn't show what is on the inside. Here's one of the richest and most powerful men who ever lived on the earth. And he is begging and pleading with God that God would hold him back from presumptuous sins. That God would keep him back from the kinds of attitudes and the kinds of actions that are actually hostile to the things of God. And he knew they started on the inside. They didn't start on the outside. He knew they were coming from inside his heart and his mind. So he begs God to keep him back because these actions and these attitudes, they were the kind of thing that are foreign to what it means to be a Christian. In fact, these types of presumptuous sins, they're, they're the type of thing that the devil would actually clap and cheer for. And yet, they're in the lives of someone who claims to follow God. David's pleading with God to change his life. Peter was writing to some Christians at the church, and he was talking to them about false teachers in the church. And this is how he described the false teachers. 2 Peter chapter 2 verse 10. He said they were daring, they were self-willed, they do not tremble when they revile angelic majesties. They were self-willed, they were daring, they were presumptuous, they were so arrogant. They were so hot-hearted and and so hot-headed that they had no problem even disrespecting angelic majesties. Well, what is an angelic majesty? What's interesting, there's a little bit of theological debate on this, but but just a few sentences before Peter wrote this, he was talking about fallen angels. So at least in context it makes sense that angelic majesties were were fallen angels. So what does it mean to revile a fallen angel? Well, in Psalm eight, we're told that we've been made a little lower than the angels. So there's an excellency, a a majesty, a, a nobility to angels that we don't share. We're we're a little lower. And even though they're fallen angels, by their nature, by their character, they're they're still made that same way. Our nature is different than than the good angels and the fallen angels. And so it seems like what Peter's saying is, you know, these, these daring, deliberate, presumptuous guys, they think that they're more powerful than Satan and all his demons. That's kind of a bold statement, right? That's pretty daring. That's one of the reasons you'll probably never hear me say anything in a sermon about, oh, let's let's go stomp on the devil. Because that doesn't sound victorious to me. That sounds presumptuous. Because the enemy hates me. He wants me to die. So I have no intentions of reviling or mocking one who hates and has greater power than I have. However, I also know who conquers him at a prayer. Just a breath. See, Jesus did not tell us, hey, you guys need to go stomp on the devil. That's not what the Bible says. What does it say? Flee, run, have nothing to do with any of the temptations that he pulls you in. Let us not undermine the enemy. Let us not be presumptuous, as it seems that these false teachers were. Let us not be daring and deliberate. But let us be deliberate and trusting and turning to our Savior to fight all of our battles. Because he has won the victory. Also, one reason that I'm not going to wear a devil stomp or t-shirt is because of what the Bible tells me. Isaiah 53, verse 6. All we, like sheep, have gone astray. We've turned everyone to his own way. You know how often we do that? We all did it this morning. <laughs> we, we don't think we did, but we, we are so prone to do this. We're always prone to turn to our own way. Listen, David is described in the Bible as a man after God's own heart. And this guy who was after God's own heart, he understood how easy it was to walk the other way. How to, how to turn away from God. How to go astray. And so he pleads with God. God, I know, I know how it easy it is for me to be presumptuous. I know how easy it is for me to be self-willed. The hymn says it what? Prone to wander. Lord, I, Lord, I fear. Feel it. I mean, you have to think the hymn writer might have been reading Psalm 19 and and listening to this notion that David's giving. of, Hey, I need to be sure I'm not thinking too highly of myself. Now, you might be thinking, look, I'm I'm no angel. But, I mean, I'm not a murderer. I mean, I I don't wear T-shirts with devil stomper on the front of it. You know, I mean, I I put a little bit of money in the plate, you know, most of the time when I'm at church. I mean, I'm not that bad. Listen, I'm confident that nobody is having a party tonight at your home where y'all are going to make plans to revile angelic majesties this week, okay? I mean, I know y'all aren't going to do that. I I agree, it's it's not normal for us to think like this, but, but let me see if I can help us in a different way feel the impact of what presumptuous sin looks like. Do we want the trooper to ignore us when we speed by him? Is that not a little presumptuous? Do we not want the doctor to tell us, oh, those extra 25 pounds, no big deal. It's fine. Yeah, it's not going to affect anything. Is that not a little presumptuous? Do we want the teacher to pass us or maybe even give us a B or an A minus even though we know we did not study at all for the test? Do we want our girlfriends and our buddies to support us and encourage us when we know that we're dishonoring our spouse? Presumptuous. It's it's a part of every day of our life. David got it. He knew it. He understood it. And he begged God to help him. Andrew Murray said this. What are the works of hell? They are chiefly these three. Self-will self trust and self exaltation see we want to categorize our sins we we want to say well you know our, our sins not that bad that is exactly what sin wants you to do but self-willed presumptuous sin it's it's really bad sin but we go well my sin today's not going to make the news I mean, it's not going to make the nightly report. Nobody's going to post anything about my sin on Facebook. So it can't be that bad. You know, if I'm not on TV or social media, then, then surely what I did today was not that bad. That's how sin lies to us. It keeps saying, oh, it's, it's not that big a deal. But it is a big deal. And let me tender that big deal with, with an interesting question. Is all sin equal in God's eyes? Well, yes and no. There's no doubt that sin is sin. There's no doubt that that there is no sin that we can say, oh, this one's not a big deal. They're all a big deal. But is all sin really equal in God's eyes? Think of it this way. Lusting after someone or lusting after something deliberately, purposely, knowing that you're doing it, that is a a really deep, dangerous sin for your mind. However, deliberately and physically and practically acting upon that lust creates a whole other world of presumptuous sin. It went from the mind to really being carried out. Spurgeon put it this way. There are some transgressions which have a deeper shade of blackness deeper shade of blackness. See, we go from the garden and we say, oh, well, you know, Adam and Eve, bless their hearts, they did the wrong thing and and now we're having to pay for it. Had we been in the garden, we would be Adam and Eve. See, we we know what it means to sin. And the reality is, Spurgeon's right. There is a, a deeper, blacker shade of certain sin. And you know where he got that from? He got it from David. See, David knew he had sin in his life, but then he knew there were these hidden sins that we looked at last week that he wasn't aware of, and then he knew there were these presumptuous sins, these sins that he knew he was acting upon, and he knew how dangerous they were. That's why he said what he said next, verse 13. Let them not rule over me. Listen, sin will rule your life. Sin will run your life. Sin will have dominion over your life. You can say to yourself, hey, I'm my own man. I'm my own woman. Nobody tells me what to do. I live my life the way I want to. Hey, I can stop at any time. Those are all lies. That's how sin lies to us. John Owen has wrapped up the only thing we need to know about how sin rules over us with this very simple thought. Be always at it whilst you live. Cease not a day from this work. Be killing sin, or it will be killing you. David knew that. He said, God, I I need you to hold me back. I need you to keep me away from this sin that will kill me if I keep giving it the door. So what would happen if his prayer was answered? Look at the last part of verse 13. Then I will be blameless, and I shall be acquitted of great transgression. When is he going to be blameless? Think of the time frame here. When is this going to happen? He's going to be blameless. He's going to be acquitted when God steps in, when God helps him. When God begins to work for him. See, David knew he didn't have a chance without God. There was no way he was going to survive this without God. He knew there were no spiritual bootstraps he could pull himself up on. And listen, the same is true today. You cannot save yourself. You cannot handle sin on your own. You don't have the ability. So just like David, we have to beg and plead, God, God, please help. Hold me back. Keep me back. And as we pray that, David says, there's acquittal. The the blame is actually removed. In the book of Numbers in the Old Testament, we have a, a bit of the historical account of the people of Israel. And in Numbers, there's a lot of different things, but one of the things we find in Numbers is that there is this one part that says that the sins of ignorance can be covered over with a particular sacrifice, So there was a a sacrifice for sins of ignorance. Well, what is a sin of ignorance? Well, this isn't exactly what it was talking about in Numbers 15, but I think it would at least help us think through it a little bit. Years ago, I was a college pastor at a church, and I took some of our college students to a conference for the day, and we were coming back to the church, riding in the church van, and and one of the students said, Hey, Dow, take this exit right here. It's a shortcut to the church. Well, I was fairly new at the church, and I'd never been on that road. So I got off the exit, got down to the stop sign, took a left. As soon as I took a left, right there on the side of the road, I saw very clearly a sign that said 45 miles an hour. I was like, all right, I'm good. I went about 30, 40, 50 yards down the road, and there was another sign. That sign said 35 miles an hour. Unfortunately, this was a heavy industrial area, And there was a huge, gigantic 18-wheeler that had pulled off on the side of the road and was blocking the 35-mile-per-hour sign that was 50 yards past the 45-mile-per-hour sign. Now, on the other side of the 35-mile-per-hour sign, the other side of the truck pulled on the side of the road was an unblocked police officer. And he proceeded to pull me over and give me a ticket for going 45 in a 35. He was really nice to me about it. He goes, yes, it's a hard place, you know, but he still gave me the ticket. So, incidentally, on a side note, that was my first speeding ticket I would ever gotten, and so I didn't know exactly what to do, so my traffic court date came up a few weeks later. I put on a suit and tie and went to court. I didn't know exactly what I was supposed to do, so I go to court. And they did it alphabetically. And, of course, being a W, that means that for three hours I sat there and listened to everybody say not guilty every time they got up to the front and give some of the lamest excuses I've ever heard in my life for anything. And so after three hours, I finally get called up. The police officer gives the report. And the judge turns to me and he says, how do you plead? And I said, guilty. I mean, I thought the signs were unfair, but, I mean, I, I was speeding, so I, I didn't know any better, so I, I said guilty. That judge looked at me like I was speaking a foreign language. He, had no, he just looked and stared at me, and he said, son, could you say that again? I said, I said, guilty. He gave me a few accountability questions, and if I remember right, he docked my ticket all the way back down to a warning. <laughs> and I think he did that for no other reason. I was the only guy who said guilty for three hours. So I got a little bit of grace just because I seemed to be the only guilty person in the room. But here's the thing. I didn't sin on purpose. I didn't speed on purpose. I didn't get off the exit and, and turn around to the kids and say, you know what? Let's see what this baby can do. I'm going to open her up and let's see, let's see what we can. I, I was unaware that I had done wrong. Sometimes we're unaware of our sin. And, and in Numbers, there's this beautiful sacrifice that was given for the sin that that you were unaware of, the sins of ignorance. But there was not a sacrifice for presumptuous sin. Numbers 15, verse 30. I'm reading this from the New Living Translation. But those who brazenly violate the Lord's will, whether native-born Israelites or foreigners, have blasphemed the Lord, and they must be cut off from the community. Verse 31 Since they have treated the Lord's word with contempt and deliberately disobeyed his command, they must be completely cut off and suffer the punishment for their guilt. Completely cut off, ostracized, alienated, condemned, damned, separated. We know what that means, right? Listen, we live in a very, very dark world. We live in a world full of terror, full of danger, full of threat. And that danger and that threat and that terror, they they provoke us to, to concern, to worry, to fear, sometimes even to anger. And we really need to be praying for the men and women in military uniforms, the men and women in business suits, the men and women in lab coats that are working hard every day to maintain our freedom, and to keep us safe. But please let us make no mistake about this. The greatest terror in the universe is not a rogue nation with a nuclear bomb. The greatest terror in the universe is not the evil activity of radical religious people. The greatest terror in the universe is being cut off from God. Having our sin, our trespasses, our transgressions separate us from God forever. Cut us off, alienate us, ostracize us from all that's good and all that's holy and all that's right, all that's joyful, all that's happy, all that's love, all that would satisfy our souls. That is the greatest terror in the universe listen again to what David says then I will be blameless and I shall be acquitted of great transgression you know what the word blameless means it means all gone all gone Unlike the people in Numbers, we have a completely different message. There is a sacrifice for our sins of ignorance, and there is a sacrifice for our presumptuous sin. And before the foundations of the world, and a thousand, including the thousand years before David wrote what he wrote, God had already made a way for the penalty of our presumptuous sin to be paid once for all. He had already made a way for our sin to be all gone. God had already made a way for a self-willed, defiant, proud, arrogant, deliberate, nice, church-going kid like me to be acquitted and blameless before the foundations of the world. God had already made a way for a self-willed, self-trusting, self-exalting sinner like you to be acquitted and to be blameless. God made a way for our sin to be all gone. This is what Paul said to the church at Ephesus. Remember, that you were at that time separate from Christ, excluded from the commonwealth of Israel, strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. Verse 13. But now, now in Christ Jesus, you who formerly were far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. Are you no longer cut off? Have you been brought near? Are you saved? Are you redeemed? Have you been rescued? If so, then drink deeply in this dark world of the light of Christ. Drink deeply that you have been brought near. Drink deeply of everything that you have in Jesus. Hidden sin, presumptuous sin, and all. Jonathan Pennington wrote this. I love it. The Peters and Pauls and millions of other believers through history have failed and fallen and have yet found Jesus' smiling, welcoming face of forgiveness. I hope you're still finding that today. Or maybe this morning, if your heart's honest with you, you know you are cut off. You know that you're not saved. You're not redeemed. You have not been rescued. You are still in your sin. And it's not ignorant sin. It's presumptuous sin. And it's not just presumptuous sin against your spouse or your kids or your boss or your friends. You are even quietly in your heart saying today, God, I will not make you more important than me. That I plead with you today. Come to Jesus. Be brought near and for the first time and forever, discover what it means that when it comes to the penalty of your sin, there are these everlasting words that will never fade from the mouth of Jesus, all gone, all gone.